Good afternoon and welcome to today's Connected Conversations. My name is Erin Kelly and I'm the Assistant Director at the Cornell Smith Family Business Initiative. We're here today with Cornell's own Dr. Carl Pilmer to discuss family risks, impact, understanding, and healing. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Executive Director Dan Baker. Thank you, Erin, and uh, thank you, Hannah, for getting us started this morning. Thank you all for joining us on this beautiful spring day. Uh, and this is a a wonderful time of year as we look forward to uh, the weather warming and, and uh, things slowly beginning to return to some form of normal. Thank you for joining us today for this conversation about family rifts uh, in the context of family businesses. These are certainly uh, very pertinent uh, conversations as many have experienced rifts in some form uh, in our own families, but when business is layered on top of that, it can become even more complex and the ripples that emanate out from there uh, can have uh, dire consequences, not only for the family, but also for many in the business or, or the surrounding community. We are honored to have Dr. Carl Pilmer with us here this morning. Dr. Uh, Pilmer is the Hazel E. Reed Professor um, in the Department of Human Development, Professor of Gerontology and Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine, and Senior Associate Dean for Research and Outreach in the College of Human Ecology. Uh, Carl also directs the Cornell Legacy Project and is the author of the book, 30 Lessons for Living. I stumbled onto Carl's book, much by accident, called Fault Lines, his most recent book, and uh, read it immediately. And, and even though this is not a book written about family business per se, what we'll find from Carl is that there is a definite connection, both in some of the research subjects that uh, he interviewed and got to know, but also just an understanding what causes family rifts, and the ripple effects that they can have, but also, and more importantly, where we hope to close today, how we might reconcile some of those risks, whether it's personally or within our family or something that we're just part of in some capacity. Carl, good to see you. How are you today? Well, great. It's a pleasure to be here. And I hopefully someday we can all meet in person, but it's really nice to meet, albeit virtually. And thanks for having me. I want to begin by talking about the Legacy Project because this is something that has been going on for quite some time. And I think for anyone who is listening today, there is a lot of good information there. Uh, the Legacy Project began in 2004 uh, when you started collecting practical advice from uh, America's elders. And using a, a number of different methods, you were able to essentially collect many responses to the questions, what's the most important lessons you have learned over the course of your life? Do you want to talk a little bit more about the Legacy Project and, and what has come out of that? Sure. And I, I'll, I'll say first, I can connect it to this work on family estrangements in two ways. First, one of my basic principles in my academic research is always embrace scientific evidence if you can find it. But I've learned over the course of my career that there are some human problems that really science doesn't have an answer. So in the case of the Legacy Project, it was how can we grow old gracefully and well. In the case of family estrangement, it's the problem of family rifts. In those situations, I think that our next best source of information is to talk to people who've been through the lived experience of whatever, you know, of whatever the problem is and have dealt with it well, uh, you know, have succeeded in it. Um, and that was the idea behind the Legacy Project. You're asking an academic to talk about his fun project, so you can feel free to do this if I go on too long. But, but I'll say that I've been a gerontologist for close to 25 years when I started that project. And I had a revelation at one point 
that all I was studying was older people as problems and the problems of older people. So I had big project on Alzheimer's disease and family caregiver stress. I was even looking elder abuse. I co-direct the Center for the Study of Chronic Pain. So I began to feel like I was rewriting the book of Job for old people, basically. And, you know, I realized that was so narrow. I was meeting wonderful, active, vibrant older people uh, throughout the course of my career and my work and all the rest of the people on this call know them. And so I decided to take a different tack and try to find out what older people know that younger people don't, to interview a whole lot of them so I could use the wisdom of crowds and make that knowledge available for younger people or people of all ages. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating. I did it at a time where I was able to talk with members of the war and crisis generation, you know, the greatest generation who now are almost all gone. So I had the privilege of interviewing a number of people who actually remembered the Spanish influenza in 1918 and talked about its impact on their lives. So yeah, it was a great project. Thanks for asking about it. And it's been picked up by business publications and business folks in general because of some of the advice. And two books have come out of that 30 Lessons for Living, and then one that was more directed at couples, or at least those in relationships, 30 Lessons for Loving. How did the 30 Lessons for Loving book evolve? One way it evolved is when I wrote the first book, I learned that, that, that there was one chapter on marriage, sort of how to choose a mate and how to have a happy marriage. And I learned that people were giving that as wedding gifts. There were people who would open it to that chapter at a reception and then ask other people to write their own lessons for the couple. So there was a lot of reader demand to focus on that one issue. And once again, even though there's been a lot of scientific research, nobody really knows what the secrets are to staying happily married, or at least reasonably happily married for 30, 40, or 50 or more years. And so again, I had that idea, well, well, let's go to the people who've done it. So I interviewed both people who'd been married for decades and people who'd also been in committed same-sex partnerships. Interesting sidelight, we found very little difference in their advice for love and romance and marriage. And again, I had this idea, let's look at people who've done something that people find hard in this day and age and see what you know advice they offer for younger people. And I'm pleased to say, you know, you'd ask yourself, wow, do young people really want to hear from 90-year-olds, you know, about their 70-year-old long marriage? And it turned out that they really did. So it was very gratifying. But the same idea. So let's go to people who've been through this, distill their ideas, and use that lived real life, real world experience to help people make their own decisions and make their own lives better. So is it more than just constantly saying, yes, honey, you're correct, honey? Yeah. Well, you know, there's some of that, to be honest. You reminded <laughs> me. I, I, I always get asked, so I'll tell one quick story. One of their main pieces of advice, I mean, like there's some big ticket ones. Like they really argue for choosing your partner carefully. They have lots of strategies for anger management and for dealing with problems with kids. One thing I used in my own life was one of their strong pieces of argument, their strong pieces of advice is if you and your spouse are disagreeing, ask yourself, who is this more important to? And then let that person make the decision if you can decide that. This was very useful because when we moved into our house, 
there was an old clawfoot bathtub that I hated and my wife loved. And we went around and around and around on that. And finally, we used that principle. Who's it more important to? It solved weeks of arguing, and it turned out that she was right anyway. So uh, like, God, that's a kind of practical tip. I want to say, you know, in those studies and in the current one that we're going to talk about more, I didn't go to older people like for their general Yoda-like wisdom or the wisdom of the character, you know, who Morgan Freeman seems to play in every movie that comes out now. <laughs> I wanted specific, practical advice. Like, what should someone do if X is happening? What's your advice for concrete situations? With the idea being that older people, there are certain things that you don't know about. While you're on the journey, you really only understand them fully when the journey's close to its end. Um, and that was why I thought, uh, there are other reasons why I think older people's advice is invaluable, in part because they're happier than younger people, which is what psychological research shows us. But so, so I felt they were genuine sources of wisdom and I wasn't disappointed. Excellent. Um, Carl, this talk comes on the heels of, of course, the uh, the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry interview with Oprah on Sunday night. And I wonder if we can use that as a starting point to talk about family risk, because, you know, whether we relate to the royal family or not, um, you know, we're seeing this risk truly played out in real time before our eyes. And we're not privy to all the information, but uh, there certainly is a, a lot coming out. Anything we can learn from what's going on, or I'm just curious what your observations of, of, of that is. It's so interesting. I've had a little bit of a busy media time recently because for some reason I had the prescience to write an article for Psychology Today about understanding the Harry and Meghan rift last August. So, so you know, that, that, so I was thinking about it even back then. I think it's a great segue into our conversation because first of all, if there ever was a family business, it's, the, it's English royalty. I mean, it has, it has, I think, and you're more of an expert, but a lot of the same characteristics with all kinds of other stuff laid onto it. There are two elements of the Harry and Meghan issue that really stand out. One is what I call in the book, uh, the problematic in-law that leaving aside these critical issues of race and other things, there's a surprising number, perhaps not surprising number of estrangements that result when someone in one of our ordinary families marries the wrong person, quote unquote. You know, a big problem, as one of my interviews told me, is that the problem with in-laws is they aren't you and they aren't your family. So there are structural difficulties in integrating in-laws into a family that occur everywhere. And then that can be uh, potentiated in a situation where there are these official roles and responsibilities. So that is one predictable piece of it. However, another major cause, with, which you see with Meghan and Harry, a fundamental underlying cause of a lot of family estrangements are deep differences in core values. That's true of our friends as well, by the way, is even though we like to think that opposites attract, it's more really true that birds of a feather flock together. We like people who share our values, especially. It's why the political conflicts are so also affecting families. If something really violates your core values, you're much more likely to enter into an estrangement. And that's a lot of the issues here. One anecdote that I think is particularly telling 
is friends of the royal couple said, Harry always had this stiff upper lip British thing, and she was the first person to whom he, he let his hair down and went into therapy. Those kinds of differences in values can have really dramatic problems for families that aren't used to them. And you know, final point, one of the things I found, and one reason why I'm grateful for this, you know, having interviewed hundreds of people now in estrangements, it's extraordinary how shameful people find it. How they, how I was, or my interviews were viewers were sometimes the only people who'd ever been told about it. So that having it come out in the open, you know, taking this problem out of the shadows and into the clear light of discussion is really useful. And I think actually for all its negatives, having this story aired so widely will help some people in long-term estrangements not feel so alone or like theirs is the weirdest family in the world. So I think that's a good side effect. We'd like to do a quick poll, and, and this will sort of set the stage for the, the rest of our conversation. And again, these, uh, this poll is, is completely anonymous. Uh, we just want to take the, uh, the temperature of the crowd. And in this, have you experienced some level of estrangement in your immediate family or, or, or at least aware of estrangement within the family somewhere? It does not necessarily need to involve you directly, because I think what came out of this book is that um, there is a large percentage of, of families that, that have experienced it and the consequences of it have many meanings, we, be they emotional, physical, even financial. So, you know, of the 50 or so online, uh, we've got so far, Carl, 30 or about 86%, they've experienced it. So what, what's your take on that, Carl? That's very close to what, I mean, I, I think if, if you define it broadly, that really is common. We, in my book, well, you know, I defined it more narrowly, so it had to involve the individual person. So if you ask a random sample of Americans, are you currently estranged from one of your close relatives? That is, you have no contact at the present time. About 27% say yes. So each of those persons in a family and the other family members know about it. If you think of what the ripple effects would be, I think our sample here is probably very accurate. I think that at least 80% of families have had some experience you know, of, of, of people so that either it might mean you're the person who had an estrangement or you're somebody caught in the middle who's tried to act as an intermediary or in some cases, and I'm, I'm, I know this happens in family businesses, it might have happened in the generation above you or even below you, depending on how old you are. So I think that's a pretty good uh, poll, uh, Dan. I think that's probably quite accurate. Uh, Four-fifths of, of, of people would say, yeah, I've seen this in my family at one point or another. So it, it is, look, numbers don't always speak for themselves. But, you know, I went into this project wanting to find out, was this one of those endless number of hidden epidemics, you know, that the media tells us about, um, you know, ranging from toenail fungus to, you know, anxiety about cats or whatever, or is this a real, very, very widespread phenomenon? And the answer is the latter. This isn't a media construct, at least in our country. Yeah. This is a really widespread problem affecting lots of people directly or indirectly. So I think that's great. That really helps that, that helps shed light on it. So how do we get here? What causes estrangement? Uh, I know you've, you've, you've talked about volcanic events in the book. 
um, but they also can happen slowly and over time. Right. And, you know, if, if we had several hours, we could go into it more, but I'll do, you know, I don't know if, if there's anybody out there who's my age, you will remember the, the comedy called If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, which was people going on a country tour and stopping for a day in each one. Well, I'll stop for a minute in each one. I would say that globally, there often is a key event, a signature event that serves as what psychologists would call a relational turning point or a relational transformation. But without trivializing it, you all know, especially if you're in a business, what one event can do to a customer. So if you've gone to the same Chinese restaurant for a decade, and then you go in and you're treated rudely or you get food poisoning, you go back and reconstruct the whole experience of that in your mind and recreate it into a narrative. So sometimes a single family incident or an angry moment can really change things. And poor communication characterizes these. But I'll say overall, there are three, I wouldn't say causes, because whoever can figure out the cause for a problem this complex is going to win a Nobel Prize. But pathways, one set of pathways have to do with the past, that people have a legacy of things like harsh parenting, extreme sibling rivalry, traumatic events in childhood, that even if they've gotten better over time, the people just can't get over it. A childhood divorce also emerged as a risk factor, especially with estrangement from the non-custodial parents. So you've got the past. And then you've got some sociocultural factors that our society creates values and expectations about families that our family members sometimes can't live up to, from children should always respect their parents to siblings should always have each other's back. So when these values and expectations become really unrealistic or divergent, that's a path. And then we come closer to our topic for you folks, two immediate, more immediate causes. One was the one I mentioned, was uh, the problematic in-law. But a very high number of estrangements result from problems around money, inheritance, and including family business issues. So money may not be the root of all evil, but it certainly is the root of a lot of family estrangements. Just to give one last example without going on too long, we think of somebody dividing their property equally among their children as an equitable thing to do. So it sounds like that's great, right? Unless one daughter has been the primary caregiver for her disabled parents for six years and the other siblings haven't done anything, so she feels misused. And if you have something like a family business, and a number of my respondents talked about this, if it can only be equitably divided if it's sold, you have a whole other range of problems. And finally, you can't divide that grandfather clock that came over from Scotland or that chip platter that served the Thanksgiving turkey for 50 years, you know, that everybody wants. So these problems, they're zero-sum games in families where things can't be, you know, really all made equal that are a hotbed for estrangements in a major area where early intervention is one of the few things that seems to really help. That's great advice. I'm curious, I mean, here we are, 
in mid-March 2021. We're, we're almost exactly one year into this pandemic, and there's been a lot of focus on the effect that it's had on families. You know, and in many cases, families have had to sequester together, and that can either uh, be a good thing or a very bad thing. I'm, I'm curious um, what you've learned over the past year in regards to family risks and the pandemic. It's fascinating. Even within our own family network, we had one romantic relationship that ended because of the pandemic and one that started because of the pandemic and may well lead to a permanent relationship. So it's very, very, it's quite variable, isn't it? I, you know, I have been really keeping my eye on all the research around the effect of the pandemic on families. There isn't any good data on estrangement specifically, but from all over the place, I have been getting anecdotal data from people. So in combination, from what I know, I would say there are two main effects of the pandemic. One is, is uh, and, or, you know, uh, positive effects, I would say, have been the strongest ones of which have come through. That uh, families, you know, because they are relying more on Zoom, there are more ancillary members. I've seen it even among people I know where a family member who was estranged kind of comes on the family email or lurks in some of the family conversations more. So I think there's been a greater ability to bring these distal family members in. I think the most important thing, one thing I talk about in the book is one of the major engines for reconciliation is a sense of what uh, I and psychologists would call anticipated regret. So we often think of regret as feeling bad about something that we did, but a strong motivator for human behavior is also calculating whether you will regret acting or inacting. The pandemic shortened people's time, you know, mental time horizons dramatically. So people have been thinking about a parent or a sibling from whom they're estranged, as if I can deal with this later, and they began to feel like they couldn't deal with it later anymore. So we've been collecting at least stories about this on our website. And I do think that's actually genuinely happening, that uh, you know it's led some families to be brought uh, closer together because people have a sense, I need to reconcile now or there won't be time. Not for everybody. So, so I guess it's funny. I think there are a few silver linings, you know, um, in this, you know, pandemic cloud. And I think for some families, it's led to at least modest reconciliation, greater outreach and greater inclusion in ways you might not expect. Yeah. And there was a family business survey that that asked a similar question. And the findings are, are, are essentially what you just said, you know, in, in certain families where there was already closeness or at least um, mechanics in place like certain policies, they've responded well to the pandemic over the last year. And, uh, you know, where there were some weaknesses already, those were only amplified over the last year. And those bore out either in the business itself or in, in some cases, the family. So um, that's very interesting. We've had a few questions come in. And so I want to invite Aaron Kelly back on and, and maybe we can uh, touch base with a few of our participants today. Aaron? Great, thank you, Dan. Uh, so Dr. Palmer, I would be curious to see, is there one particular emotion that tends to lead more towards estrangement, maybe hurt or anger, um, or is it kind of across the board, whatever is irking that particular family? 
That is such a great question because the answer, you know, to me was counterintuitive and was not what I expected. And I will say that both my own research and some schools of family therapy do point to one particular emotion. Now, I'm not sure with some folks, I know folks in the business community, there are some folks who are, and I think Dan, you and I talked about uh, the influence of what's called Bowen family systems theory. Uh, and I know they do, there are folks who are, uh, um, if you don't know about it, it's complex and it's not for everybody, but they have some really powerful insights, um, both for family and business, I believe. And one thing which I found that maps completely onto Bowen family um, system theory is the importance of anxiety in family cutoffs or estrangement. So very often when we think about estrangement, people think about anger, hostility, guilt and shame, you know. But what I found over and over was a major barrier to reconciling and a major reason for getting out was being made so anxious by life in the family that the person sort of couldn't stand it anymore. Well, now, what do I mean by anxious? Well, one is being drawn back into old and un unwanted family roles so that, that uh, when you go back home, you're sucked into a, a dynamic that you don't like. There's also the possibility of being criticized, you know, being, uh, you know, um, not accepted, you or your lifestyle not being accepted. So I found that there is anger and shame and hostility, but a lot of people who eventually reconciled, spent time with a counselor or, or got other help and overcame their anxiety about being in the relationship. And that really made a big difference. I mean, there are these other emotions, of course. Uh, you know, another one I think uh, that is important is when you ask in this wide open world of ours where you can Google family and the first thing you see is do families make a difference anymore? The answer is they really do. And one reason why, you know, that it's so painful is that across bad things that can happen to us or stressful things, actual interpersonal rejection is one of the most painful uh, because it affects our self-image and our self-esteem so directly. So I think, you know, the process of rejection and both the anger and, you know, kind of sadness and defensiveness, you know, also that emerge is another strong emotion. Thanks for asking that. Uh, that's a great it, it, it turned out to be a really interesting part of the studies we did. And so did your data show that there was any particular age group that was prone to initiating estrangement? Yeah. I think, you know, not exactly, but, I, it's, but, you know, because I did something different in this work, and I think it makes it maybe a bit more appropriate to the world that you folks work in. Most studies of estrangement have focused only on parents and children. Whereas I included grandparents, siblings, grandchildren, many people were very close to cousins, almost like siblings, and so estrangement from them was difficult. So if you look at that, I'd say yes and no. People between the ages of 30 and 55 are more likely in the surveys we did to report estrangement. But there's a pretty simple reason for that. If you're between the ages of 30 and 55 or so, 
you're very likely to have living siblings, living parents, and living children. So you have more people from whom you can become estranged. I would say one thing, though, and I think there's good evidence, and it's a very important cautionary note for you parents of adult children out there. Research, not just from my study, but over the last half century, has shown almost no matter how you study it, even though adult children care about their parents and love them, in general, parents care more. We've invested incredible resources in our children, and we're extraordinarily invested in having them around later on in our lives. Adult children, and especially the millennials on down, are much more likely, even though it's painful for them to say, if this relationship isn't working out, I can take a break from it. I can go off on my own. I have friends who are, who are as important to me as family are, and things like that. So I would say in terms of actually initiating it in parent-child estrangement, it's typically substantially more likely to be a child who initiates it. Um, and when I say it's a cautionary tale, many people, I'm 66, um, in my age range and above, grew up with a feeling that family was sacrosanct, that blood was thicker than water. And no matter what you did, your family members would stick with you. So as a parent, so what if you were critical or, you know, um, were rejecting of a child's lifestyle or something? It's not like they would end the relationship. And the answer is that's wrong. Our adult children, especially 40 and under, really see walking with their feet, at least for a while, as a real possibility. So, you know, what we, the research argues that parents need to really consider how far they go. You know, that line drawn in the sand can mean, at least for a while, the end of the relationship. And that's what not just our own research, but a substantial amount of other research show. Parents really do have more to lose in extreme family conflict because of the child's greater ability to say, I don't need this relationship. And that was shown in our interviews. Um, estranged adult children tend to talk about the estrangement differently. Painful, but one they can live with at least for a while unless things change. I hope that answers your question. I kind of riffed on it. but Oh, no, it definitely does. It seems like a combination of both kind of age group and cultural shifts over, you know, the last century. So. Right. It's partly a structural issue that, you know, people would argue that we where it's called it um it's actually got a name that all of you can be can feel free to drop at cocktail parties called uh the intergenerational stake s-t-a-k-e the concept being that because of their investment structurally parents have a greater emotional stake in their children after they become adults and independent than vice versa not that it means that the adult children don't care or aren't attached but it just means it's an imbalance that makes it substantially more likely that an adult child will be the one to say, at least for a while, I'm done. Very interesting. So we have another question from the chat, uh, and it says, it seems a major cause of family rifts is one or both parties feeling betrayed um, and a sense of betrayal. Can you talk a little bit about practical guidelines on recovering from betrayal and perceived betrayal? You know, that it, it's, I, I'm, um, see, I knew well, one reason why I wanted to do this was I knew I would get good new ideas. You know, I didn't single out the concept of betrayal specifically in the book. And as 
However, that question makes me realize that it does characterize a number of these relationships where somebody does feel betrayed. And, but you know, I guess I would say that wasn't typically the language that people use so that they were less likely, I guess, you know, to say the person betrayed me as they disappointed me. They violated my expectations. There were some incidents of true betrayal where a person either violated an agreement. Um, certainly there were financial shenanigans or financial issues in which the person felt truly betrayed by the other person. One thing which happened in those situations certainly was, an, there was both an increase in shame and in anger. So in terms of what people do to prevent it, or what to do. There was, even though I don't have this quantitatively, so I can't say it exactly, from looking at our 300 interviews, a situation where there's, say, a concrete incident of betrayal, where someone does something bad to the other person, and it's not in the context of a long-term bad relationship, those were more likely to reconcile. People, especially if it's a situation where someone can identify, here's what I did to you. I was wrong in doing it. I'm sorry. That can really be helpful. I'll give an example. If I could give a family business example, which I talk about in the book, and unfortunately, this one did not reconcile. Uh, there was a family business in the Midwest that was started by the patriarch who was in the grandparental generation. It was very successful. Most of the kids and at least one in-law came in. So there were several children, there were about six children. Most went into the business or their husbands did. The patriarch died and all the assets were in the hands of his widow. And she decided to cut a couple of the siblings out of the business and told the other ones, but not those two. So they felt unbelievably betrayed, not just by the grandmother's will, but when she died but that other people had known about it and not told them. And that estrangement had a ripple effect down through generations where the cousins no longer spoke to one another. And it had been but one of those big Italian families with sauce always bubbling on the stove, every holiday together was completely split apart. So, uh, you know, that's a cautionary tale for anticipating what somebody else might think of as betrayal and taking action. So yeah, I'm going to think about that more though too, because you know, as I'm talking about it, it seems like it was an ongoing theme and I can certainly give that highlighted example. And we need to go back and take more of a look for how that theme comes up, I think. I have one more question. And so I was listening recently to David Kessler, who's written about grief talk and talk about judgment demands punishment. And I was curious if in your research, if you found that arrangement the root of it to be more about self-preservation or a punishment of sorts towards the person that they were having the disagreement or ripped with. Yeah, there's a psychoanalyst talks about annihilation fantasies, you know, that people have where they're, they're so angry. Let me answer that in, in a slightly broader way. And if it doesn't get to it, tell me. In, I mean, you're right. There are these punishment fantasies and what someone wants to have happen. What I learned, there are very few times as a social scientist, I will say always or never. 
And this is one of those few times, I'll make it almost always, almost every person who reconciled, and in the study, I should say, the big interview study uh, that's described in the book, uh, we, we interviewed 300 people in great depth. A hundred of those people had reconciled and 200 had not. So I was able to focus on, the, this was really the largest in-depth study of people who had reconciled after a family rift ever done. So it's mountains of data and we're still sifting through it. But one thing which almost everyone who reconciled said, uh, the piece of advice they would offer others is that you must abandon the idea that you can align these two very divergent pasts. That it's never going to happen that after years or decades, the other person's going to agree that they were completely wrong, that their years-long interpretation of the, of the whole situation was wrong. This powerful narrative they've created, which they've talked to with all their friends and their sympathetic family members, really was wrong, and you're right, brother or parent or son. You know, to give a simple example, if brother Tom thinks he was just doing normal teasing, and brother Joe thinks he was emotionally abusing him severely, after 20 years, those two models of the past aren't going to align. So almost everyone who reconciled, and it was very hard for some of them, had to give that up. You know, had to give up the idea that the other person had to beg for forgiveness. Often they gave up the idea that the other person even had to apologize, and they lived life forward. They basically agreed not to process the past. And it was very few of them who found it to be successful, you know, to try to bring the other person over to their view of what had gone, gone on. So, you know, the, and they typically learn that they were so attached to their own narrative of what went on. And the other person was too, and that neither of them were going to give it up. So in most cases of reconciliation, whatever the cause, and certainly over financial issues, people basically said, if the other person could have acted differently, they probably would have. I can't convert them to my view of what went on. And we're just going to plan for a future from here. So yeah, I think most people gave up the idea. Well, one last thing, if I can say, you know, the concept of an apology, but what some of them realized is if you're demanding an apology in order to end the estrangement, it's not going to be much of an apology. So that it doesn't make sense to have that be a core demand. And often an apology followed later after people had reestablished contact and kind of gotten back together again. So I think that relates, you know, that's the best way I would answer your question that, yes, there was feeling violated, feeling, you know, the sense of justice in a lot of people had been violated. But if they wanted to reconcile, they almost invariably gave up that, you know, passion for justice and uh, kind of self-abasement in the relationship and moved ahead without it. Great. Thank you. Dan, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, that's wonderful insights and great advice. In the context of reconciliation, we do want to just share one more poll question, being that uh, many people who are with us here uh, today have indicated they are either part of a rift or uh, there's a rift in the family. So if you have experienced this rift, do you believe it's reconcilable? One of the big takeaways for me in the book, Carl, 
was the fact that in many of these reconciliations, similar to what you just said, you have to get beyond the fact that our paths are going to merge in a way that I might be happy with, but what's most important is just the the act of initiating the reconciliation and the fact that you you do it more for yourself than for the other person. Is this accurate? You know, I think that is absolutely right. That, uh, you know, people have asked me about this project in the book, um, what was really surprising. And one of the most surprising things or a thing I hadn't expected was how many people found undergoing uh, what you might refer to as a discipline, which is, of course, used in coaching and business. Uh, you know, the idea of a discipline is doing something difficult where you succeed, you fail, you succeed, you fail. You know, it might be difficult, but you stick with it. That's the way they often describe this reconciliation process. And many people who did it, even if they tried and failed, felt a sense of resolution, a sense of weight lifted from their shoulders. In a sense, I was surprised how many people said, yep, you know, I, you know, I overcame these issues with my brother. It's not perfect, but we're in touch now. Had this sort of feeling, if I could do this, I could do anything. You know, because it was it was um, sufficiently difficult, so that they really found this idea of reconciling to be an engine for personal growth, and a weight off their shoulders. And one of my favorite quotes actually was a guy who had been estranged from his brother, had been previously very close for 25 years. Finally called him. They talked. They worked through some things, and he said, "And the next morning, I woke up and said, my God, this is the first time." I haven't had it in the back of my mind that I haven't spoken to my brother in 25 years. Uh, so they found concrete benefits also, by the way, you know, that, that they had access again to family resources sometimes. They were part of family gatherings. If a whole side of the family's been split off, you know, there may be all kinds of reasons to have that connection. So there were, there were concrete benefits. But, I, but exactly as you say, there were these psychic benefits as well. You know, you know, I wanted just to add on to that. I haven't really analyzed it. I do think that of the conflicts over money and the splits over family businesses, if I went back and looked at it, were, if I can put it this way, more reconcilable. You know, that if there had been a pre-existing pretty good relationship, it, it was reasonably possible for folks who'd had this horrible fallout over a business deal to actually get back together. So I think in this business world, it's sort of hopeful that, you know, if there was a good basis of relationship before, you can sort of move forward and get some of these benefits. So it's interesting. And, and I didn't answer, but if I could answer, I would probably put, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the midst of a rift with my brother that is many years in the making. And similar to as you shared before, it, it built for some time. And then there was an event that involved money, a very small sum of money uh, in the passing of my mother and, and her estate. And, you know, and I see this play out in family businesses as well, that often it's not the money at all. You know, it could be a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand or a hundred million, but it's, it's, it's the emotional, um, you know, fight that, that erupts. And so, you know, they're 60% say that they're in a rift and they do find that it's reconcilable. One says no, and about 40% unsure, which, you know, maybe they're looking for some guidance on this topic. Hopefully they've received some already, but where is a good starting point? You know, you, you've identified a few 
you know, classic, uh, you know, brother rift. Mine is a brother rift, or maybe it's a parent and child rift, or maybe it's uh, just somewhere in the family. Where do you begin? Well, let me give, so, so what's great about this project, Dan, is I'm not giving my own advice. I'm giving the advice of, these, of this large number of interviewees who've done it. So here are several points that they would say. One, ask yourself if you're ready to reconcile. You know, I mean, is it really something that the person wants to do, that, that you've thought about the pros and cons, you have considered? What if it's a reconciliation into an imperfect relationship? What if I'm rejected? And very often, people found some kind of counseling at that early contemplation stage to be really helpful, uh, you know, to plan out why they wanted to do it, not involving the other person, because that's usually very difficult. But although, like in a few cases, it worked. But to understand why you want to do it, I would say that's point one. Point two, they argued, is ask yourself the question as you're getting ready to, you know, approach the other person. What's the least I can accept? If this relationship starts up again, can I accept it? If my sibling is still the same jerk that he or she always was. If it's a parent-child estrangement and the child says, and this is a true example from the book, all right, mom, you can come visit me once every two months and see the grandchildren, but your second husband can never come with you. I will never talk about him. You can't stay in our house. You have to stay in a hotel. People who reconciled had to ask themselves the question, what's the least I'll accept in the new relationship? And is that a worthwhile? So I'd say it's preparation, kind of mustering your social support, asking yourself though, what kind of relationship you want, and then really thinking about the best approach that's tailored to the person. So if some, if some of you folks out there are in estrangements where it's stonewalling, there's no contact. One example, you know, they frequently gave examples of how a neutral overture, but which ranged from example, sending a high school kid who's graduating a gift, like a niece or a nephew, liking something on Facebook if the person allows you to friend them, Simply engaging in neutral overtures to start the conversation was a third piece. Fourth is, you know, understanding if the person wants to process what's going on or not. And as I said earlier, giving up that need. So, Dan, I don't know if this is true for you, but in, in these cases of inheritance, powerful and emotional. I mean, look, someone writing a will is making a statement for eternity, right? I mean, like, this is not a trivial thing. They had to decide if they could give up that, you know, kind of thinking about the past. And finally, if you're interested in reconciling um, with someone who is simply not responding, that's, that's the most difficult situation. It's often there's been a cascade of events, usually some contemptuous, angry, you know, build up. And then one person says, I'm done. I never want to speak to you or hear from you again. And they reject any contact. There's unfortunately not great advice there, but some people did have success. And what they told me is, God knows don't stalk the other person, but continue to indicate to them that the door is open. Send a card, send Christmas cards. If there's a family email, include them on it. So do small gestures to keep it open and to show your willingness. So I would say those are basically four points. You know, there are more that we don't have time for. But I think understanding one's own 
you know, prior behavior and, and, and motivation probably comes out at the top for the people who reconcile. In family business, we use the word legacy often. And I think legacy is one of those words that has dual meanings because there's, there's a positive aspect of legacy, especially as it pertains to family business. There can also be a negative aspect of things we hand down generation to generation. I've seen these rifts uh, in my family previously. You've seen them play out in other families. And, and one thing that I often share in the class that I teach, you know, in family business, the, the decisions you make in your, in your business may last a year, two years, five years. However, the decisions you make in your family can last generations. And so when, when there is a rift, that separates a family for uh, possibly all time. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that there are people out there that you are related to that you might not ever have a chance to know or your children might not have a chance to know. Can can also have its effects. Yeah, um, I could not agree know, more. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, this uh, topic is certainly uh, stirring our participants. There are some great questions that are coming in, so I want to leave some time for that as we close up the hour here today. Aaron, do you want to uh, share a few more questions, please? Right. So as we're kind of coming in at one o'clock, I'm going to combine a couple of them that center around the idea of forgiveness. And so talking about that if apologies are not forthcoming, how important is forgiveness? And then we have one that really specifically talks about the example of in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and talking about that, you know, in your book, you talk about that successful reconciliations don't refight the past. They, they move on. They decide that they're going to move forward and build new. But in South Africa, you know, their tactic was that you have to confront the past, air it, hold it up to the light in order to move ahead and build new relationships. And so how do you kind of see all of those working together, the idea of forgiveness and, and or not rehashing the past and just moving forward? Those are also terrific questions. But just a few kind of bullets, given that we, we have um, a limited time. One, as an internal process over the last 10 years, the the psychological research, the experimental and other research on forgiveness is really powerful. And I do think for people in intractable estrangements, even if the relationship isn't moving ahead, exploring the possibility of an internal feeling of forgiveness seems to be very therapeutic for people, uh, you know, say towards a parent or towards a sibling. So I, I absolutely agree with that. I think what a number of people who were in unresolvable, at least for now, estrangement said that they engaged in forgiveness without an apology, just feeling a forgiving sense towards the other person gave them more peace and allowed them to kind of move along. So I think it's a really important concept and one that we want to explore in our future research. That's a great an interesting example about the whole, say, national reconciliation process in a place like South Africa. Uh, the only issue there is there was pretty good consensus about who was at fault in that situation. I haven't really thought this out, so I'll just say off the top of my head, you know, you sort of knew who the oppressor was and who the oppressed was, you know, to some extent. And so there wasn't a big issue of debating who's to blame as much. And I think that that is almost always more uncertain and ambiguous in families and why it's harder to get through it. 
if somebody will admit that they were at fault and that they want to reconcile because they admit that, it can be easier. So I'm going to have to think about how that analogy fits with a family estrangements. Uh, you know, and I think it's another good example, and it relates to what Dan just said too. Many people in the study, by the way, especially those whose families had broken up because of money. Um, so we interviewed several dozen college students about estrangements in the parental generation, which were often over money. Everybody said, look to the next generations. Like before you have this massive rift over money, know that it may persist as you know the Iroquois nation said down to the seventh generation. So think of this collateral damage and ripple effects uh, as part of it. But yeah, so, but, but, but coming back to your question, yeah, I think internal feelings of forgiveness and conveying that can be really powerful in these fractured relationships. So it's like you were reading my mind and that of our participants, because the next question is talking about uh, how to avoid passing along the negative repercussions or effects of those rifts to the next generation. And are there any opinions, guidelines, um, advice to that next generation so that we can avoid giving them bias, even if that rift isn't reconciled? Uh, great question. And, you know, there are there's some questions that have an answer that is simultaneously simple and very difficult. And that's the case here, very similar to the way parents are advised during a divorce. Number one, is to, especially if it's between, say, my age-ish or people in middle age, as this often is the case, and, and this was, was a frequent scenario in family business folks in my studies, you know, there'll be, there'll be siblings who are in a business together, and there's a rupture, and then their children take sides. The people who work their way through it best encourage their children to stay in contact. So the third, you know, they, you know, the child generation who was not involved, it assured them that they assured them that they were innocent bystanders, that, you know, this wasn't their fault. And I'm talking more about children in high school and beyond. And that was also an important engine for reconciliation that let's say two brothers had had a falling out over a financial issue. They aren't speaking to each other at all. Those families that, that prevented the ripple effect down through generations as best they could, who didn't require everyone else to take sides, who held back on their extreme criticism of the other person, that was beneficial for everybody. And you know, it, it, the more intractable money-related estrangements were when the sides split so dramatically, no one saw each other again. And you'll see examples in the book of this. So I think. It's really, it's having a bigger and broader view of, I think, as Dan said, really excellently, it's a broader view of family life in which you do not enlist everyone else into this um, financial feud and where it's openly discussed and kids are encouraged to stand, you know, the cousins don't lose the cousin relationship because the parents are fighting. And we heard that again and again from young people who were innocent bystanders, they would say things like, I just can't believe they would rupture our family over, you know, this inheritance issue or over some business deal. 
So it is actively, consciously preventing these ripple effects into future generations would be really worth everybody's time and effort. Great, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm gonna to hand it back to Dan to close out the hour. Yeah, I think Carl, you summed it up. You know, this is simple and complex at the same time. It, it, it takes little steps to reconcile, but at the same time, uh, huge emotional steps to accept whatever the outcome might be. So I, I really appreciate, we re really appreciate your time here today, Carl, and just sharing this. And, and again, based on the, the feedback thus far, uh, there certainly is quite a bit of interest in this, and maybe we can revisit this topic in a little bit. Yeah, I was um, hoping maybe we I'll, could think of some kind of a survey. Uh, you know, I, I also want to share with people, Dan, and sorry to interrupt, that we have a website yeah. that is familyreconciliation.org, all one word, family reconciliation. So it has some more information about the project. People can upload their own stories. So just wanted to Great. mention that. No, we'll we'll capture that and we'll put that in our um, our follow-up email for everyone that has registered. This has been a, a fascinating conversation well, thanks for having uh, with me. you, Carl. I want to thank everyone for joining us here today. I invite you to join us uh, again next month when we look at uh, an update to um, family businesses' contribution to the U.S. economy. This is a, a research project that has been about 20 years in the making, explores the role that family businesses play in the U.S. economy, uh, and that will be on April 14th. Carl, good to see you today. Stay healthy, stay well, and uh, I do look forward to meeting you in person sometime well, soon. Thanks so for much for else. having me, Dan. I have really enjoyed it and, uh, you know, and really terrific questions. They're really thought-provoking and we'll, all, we'll continue to think about them on our end. So thanks a lot. As a true researcher, it sounds like you have some material to take with you here today. Absolutely. For everyone else, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Carl's book, uh, Fault Lines. Thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful day. And uh, we look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you.